0: Chapter Twenty One of For God and Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. For God and Gold by Julian Stafford Corbett. Chapter Twenty One. Wearily, the weeks went by after John Drake's death, what with the miserable effect it had upon the whole company and the continual rains, it was all that Harry and I could do to keep the men in good heart. Indeed, our lives at that time were far from easy, not only in respect of our spirits, because of our grief, but also in respect for our bodies, because of the wet and cold and, above all, the lesions of a certain grievous insect, which the constant rain seemed to engender of the mud upon our islands. We had suffered from them all along the coast, but never so grievously as here. The Spaniards call them mosquitoes, they are insects of the biggest and similitude of reasonable nets, but for ferocity, persistence and trumpeting past anything we know in England. We often marveled for what purpose they could have been made unless it were to punish Spaniards. Yet this reason holds for a mariner who had sailed in a ship of the Muscovy company, reported to us, that they had felt and seen them as bad or worse in the country of the summits and Permians upon the Muscovy Sea. Yet, by constant work in strengthening our fort and hunting with the seamaroons on the main, no less than by every past time Harry could devise, we managed to keep in health till the general returned. It was towards the end of November that he came back, with a price of some 90 tans, which, as well as his penises, was laden with all manner of provisions, not forgetting several botijos of good Spanish wine. Like ourselves, he had suffered much from wet and cold, as well as from want of meat, for he had found the whole coast thoroughly alarmed and prepared for his coming, yet had he taken not a few prizes, and, what pleased him best, ridden out a storm which lasted many days in the harbour of Carthagena itself, in spite of all the Spaniards could do with horse, foot, ordnance, and treachery to drive him thence. But all the joy with which we might have talked over these things, was married because Jack was no longer there to take his part of Frank's and Joseph's grief over the loss of their brother I will not speak yet I know how deep it was though they said but little Frank seemed to care no longer to jest over what the prisoners had said about him and when alone was very stern though outwardly with the man he would be cheerful as ever. It was all the harder to bear since we were now condemned more than ever to inaction. From what the general saw on his last made voyage to Cartagena and the intelligences he had from the prisoners, he was resolved to keep close that the Spaniards might think us entirely gone until we could hear of the coming of the plate fleet when with better hope we could make our attempt by land against the recuse that came to meet it. We were well able to lie still a while since our magazines were full and there was no necessity for our putting to sea for intelligence since the seameroons had spies out everywhere for the first tidings of the coming of the fleet. Frank's efforts to keep the men in good heart were redoubled, since, now that the rains were beginning to abate, he knew the sun would increase in power and draw all kinds of noxious humours and exhalations from the southern earth, against which danger he held there was nothing so medicinable as a tearful spirit. Till the end of the year things went well, though, in spite of all we could do with daily worship, music and sports, it was plain that crude and heavy humours were being engendered in us by the sudden change we underwent from cold to heat. Our surgeon was ever urging Frank to permit him to rid the man of these humours by strong purgations, but he would not consent to it, rather serving out more wine to those who seemed most oppressed. So, we passed Christmas indifferently well, but our merry-making over, things went worse than ever, with constant quarrels and murmuring, which Frank bore with very patiently, knowing it was an infirmity of the flesh rather than the spirit. At last, some lay down and would not be persuaded to any sport, and before the end of the day, our surgeon pronounced ten of them to be sick of a calenture. Three days after, half our company was downed and several dead. In vain did Frank and the surgeon try every remedy they could devise. On the seventh day Joseph Drake was seized to his brother's great grief. For some days our general had been very earnest to have made discovery of this terrible disease by ripping open one of those who had died, and now, in hope to save his brother, He openly proclaimed his intention, but in spite of their sufferings the company murmured so loudly at this profanation of their dead comrades that he was compelled to forgo his desire. They say I care not what indignity I set on them, said Frank to me, when I told him what the men were saying. So long as I save my brother, poor lads, they must be sorely sick in body and spirits, to say that. They shall see, yet, how they are all brothers to me, and they shall have their way. Yet, I would dearly love to make discovery of the strange matter. It is hard, very hard, to lose Joe as well as Jack. Yet so he did, and two days after Joseph Drake breathed his last in his brother's arms, I saw tears drop from Frank's eyes as he bent over the fair curly head that lay on his knee. Watching the bright young life go fitfully out, Joe had spoken last of his unhappy mother, seeming to lament. He had not been more kind to her, and this memory had touched Frank, who was himself sick, more keenly than he could bear. So as I say, he was weeping over his brother as he died. When the last glimmer of life was gone, he laid the fair head on the pillow, and kneeling down prayed to God very earnestly that his brother might be the last to die nearly all the company were gathered round kneeling very respectfully as the general prayed when he made an end they all cried amen and most tried in vain to keep back a tear when they saw how tenderly their general leaned down and kissed the calm young face of his dead brother. All the time, our rat-faced surgeon sat and moved in the corner of the house where we were. He alone did not kneel, but sat with his case of knives on his knee and never took his little round eyes off the general. He shifted uneasily when Frank stooped to give his farewell embrace to his brother and looked more keenly than ever when he rose up to his feet with dry eyes and the old resolute look on his face. Now, my lads, said he, you may go. It is over. I thank you all heartily for your prayers. Your duty is done. But mine and master's surgeon's is only begun. You would not let me do it before. And so we have come to this pass. But by God's help, this day we will make an end. You thought I used you hardly when I would have done this to one of your mates. So I stayed my hand, knowing how abominable it is to unlearned men. Yet now you shall not hinder me, for between me and my brother's body no one has a right to stand. Go now and ere long you shall know whether I hold my brotherhood to my father's son higher than my brotherhood to you, my company. The rat-faced surgeon had opened his case But the men still were loath to go, as though they would have stayed Frank from his purpose. And again the little black eyes looked keen and anxious at the captain. Go, men, cried Frank in a sharp biting voice. It is I, Captain Drake, who beat you and whom you know. Slowly then they left. More than one stepped at the door to look round at the surgeon rolling up his sleeves and shudder till Frank's said "Look" sent him on their way. He beckoned me to stay, and indeed, I think he had need of some one to support him in this terrible resolution. It is a fearful thing to use a body as we were about to do. But what must it have been to Frank, thus to desecrate the mortal part of that fair youth he loved so well? It made me sick how eagerly the surgeon went to his work. As soon as we had stripped the corpse, Frank drew from his pack a book he had often spoken to me about. It was the Englishman's treasure, or The True Anatomy of Man's Body by Master Thomas Vickery. This he held open in his hand and signed to the surgeon to begin. Over the terrible sight that followed, let me draw the veil. To me, it was as heroic, a spectacle as ever Agamemnon presented at Aulis. It was a holy sacrifice by our general of his tenderest feelings. Yet when I think how detestable and human and sacrilegious in most men's eyes is the dissection of bodies, how it has ever been banned by the Church, how there are many who would have it altogether prevented by law, and how loathsome it is even in my eyes, who so well know its necessity. I hasten from the picture that fills my memory, since I have said enough for men to bear in mind this crowning act of Francis Drake's heroical resolution. Everything he did before and afterwards I think called for less from his noble nature than that. Many highly sounding acts he achieved before his death in the face of danger and the heat of battle, with a constancy that will make true English hearts beat higher for all time. Yet nothing stamps Hero on his memory, to my thinking, like what that January afternoon he steadfastly endured on that fever-stricken isle, in cold blood, unshaken, unflinching, and almost unmarked. It was the first experiment in anatomy, that our captain made that voyage. I cannot wonder, it was also the last. Even the surgeon was more moved than he, and in order to purge the pestilent humours which he swore arose from the body and were the cause of the disease, he took so strong those of his own compounding that he never spake again, nor did his boy, who also tasted the medicine, recover wholly till we reached England. Frank therefore became surgeon himself, and whether from the knowledge he had gained by his terrible experiment on his brother, or whether by using different remedies, or none at all. I know not, but certain it is that from that time no more died, and those that were sick began rapidly to mend. Still, we had suffered heavy loss before it was all ended, and many were for giving up our voyage, protesting it was useless to attempt to make it with so maimed a company. But Frank would not hear such counsel and cheerfully encouraged them to endure a little longer. Our joy then may be judged when on the last day of January some of the simaruns, who ever since our first meeting with them had been continually ranging up and down the country to gather news reported of a certainty that the plate fit had put into Nombre de Dios Pinus was at once dispatched to the outermost island of the Cativise to confirm this report, whereby our general hoped to test how far our allies were worth of trust, since he knew that if it were as they said, the victuallers would be seen flocking to the ships with supplies. Within a few days, the Penis returned bringing the joyful confirmation we desired and something more which we very little desired, namely 13 Spanish prisoners and amongst them the Scribano of Tolu and a black eyed comely girl, his daughter. These had been taken on a frigate laden with beetles, which had been dealt with for the sake of getting certain news of the fleet nothing could have embarrassed us more in the last preparations we had now to make for a land journey. To release the prisoner was impossible, since they would have straightway spread the news which it was our business to conceal, while to keep them was to have them in constant danger of being cruelly massacred by the Cimaroons. Frank took every precaution that was possible, the prisoners were landed on Slaughter Island, as we called it, since we had lost so many of our company there, so as to keep the Cimarroons from sight of them, and then speedily set on board our Great Cartagena Prize, which lay moored hard by the island. Here they were all brought before our general to be questioned, he received them in such state as we could make upon the poop and presently encouraged them to fear nothing, for they seemed very ill at ease as not knowing what treatment they should get at our hands. In the midst of his speaking, I saw the girl draw a knife from her breast and, with the suddenness of a cat, spring upon Frank. In truth, I think he must have been very near his death had not I seized her hand, being prepared by what I had seen and held her. It was all I could do to keep her from him, for she writhed and struggled in a frenzy of passion and would not be pacified till, much against our will, we were forced to bind her pretty hands behind her for the sake of peace, as though she had been a common mariner. Then she stood alone in the midst before Frank helpless, panting and flushed a passingly beautiful picture. Her luxuriant black hair was loosened in her struggles and fell all about her face and her large dark eyes were flashing defiance at Frank as she drew herself up proudly before him, looking like some young tigress fresh-cocked from the forest in the plenitude of her wild youth and beauty. Well, my beauty, says Frank good-humouredly, this is a strange woman's work. Why will you force on us such discourtesy as to fit you with such rude bracelets? Your pretty white arms were meant for other work than this. I know that she answered scornfully, but when men turn woman, woman must do men's work. You, your man, and know not what it is for a woman to be amongst such curs as this, who cower to be kicked at the very sight of an Englishman and let you. Heretic Lutheran dogs plunder good Catholics, as you will, and then whine to the Blessed Virgin to help their cowardice. Ah, if we had a few hearts like yours and mine, then you should see. God forbid, says Frank, that we meet many men like you, else surely will our voyage take more making than we bargained for. Ah, you're a man, she said, and you know, I am glad I did not kill you now, though I bowed the first time I met him to attempt with my backhand the life of the Dragon Francisco. Dragon Francisco is good, laughed Frank. Were you twice as wild, you should have your bracelets off for that. Loser, Jasper, she will be quiet now. Ah. She said again, as I undid her bands, You are a man. It is long since I felt a man's hand. With that, she threw herself at the captain's feet, and, taking his rough hand in hers, kissed it ardently. Then, without a word, she walked away from where we sat, and quietly fell to twisting up the great masses of black hair that clung about her which was a wonder to us all. Having got the intelligence we required from the prisoners, it remained but to set a guard over them, both to prevent their escape and to keep an eye on the Cimaroons. I think Mr. Oxham would have very gladly undertaken this labor for the sake of those same lustrous, dark eyes. But Frank, would not have it so and appointed me to it, bidding me treat the prisoners with all courtesy so far as I could, having regard to their safe keeping. I did not much relish my worship of the wild girl, though I think I was as much taken with her beauty and spirit as any of us, for Frank, would not have her put under constraint, though he suffered me to keep the rest below hatches when night came on. So, I allotted her the best place in the poop and bade her good night. As the night wore on, my anxiety only increased, and being unable to sleep, I went to walk on deck. It was a glorious, tropic night. With the moon flooding, the dark forests and studded islands, and the slumbering sea, with the brilliancy we do not know in the old world. It was so beautiful that I bade the lookout man go to rest, saying I did not wish to sleep and would keep his watch for him. He seemed very surprised, but thanked me civilly and went below. As I watched alone on deck, the Spanish girl kept constantly in my thoughts. Whatever way I tried to think, my mind always came back to her, and her white skin and beautiful eyes, so flashing in anger, so soft in peace. I began to dread she would be the cause of contentions amongst us and to long for the time when we should be well away on our land journey. I was sitting in the forecastle and had been there perhaps for the space of half an hour, when, just as the senorita was most vividly in my thoughts, I saw the poop door stealthily open and a strange figure appear. I knew in a moment who it was, In spite of her being so changed, it was plainly the Spanish girl looking more beautiful than ever in the dress she had adopted. It was nothing more than the ordinary apparel which the Spanish mariners use in those seas, consisting of loose stripped drawers reaching just above the knee and an easy-fitting sleeveless shirt of white material, which she had girded tightly about her waist with a red scarf. Too amazed to act, I could only watch her ripe young figure, which her dress set off to its full beauty, creeping warily forward towards me. Very quietly, I sank lower into the shadow of the bulwarks to watch what she would do Every now and again she looked round in some new and graceful posture, to see if she were watched. At last she reached the foremast to which was fixed the mutilated image of the virgin and child. And there she fell upon her knees and began to pray in a low earnest voice that I could just hear. Holy Mother of God. She said, "For the last time, I beseech thine aid to support me across the dark waters, to get me through the forest, to bring me safely to Nombre de Dios, that thy loving worshippers may come at my word and destroy the heretics that would plunder the treasure which His Most Catholic Majesty would devote to thy service, saving only." if it be not seen, Captain Francisco Drake, whom it were a pity to kill, and the sad-faced man who had worded me so courteously, and who, I think, is half in love with me. Then she rose and walked with desperate quickness towards the side, but ere she had gone three steps, I had leaped down into the waist and she was struggling frantically in my arms. I was resolved to stay her from the wild purpose. Her brave spirit was bent on. As she writhed in my grasp, I remember being rather afraid that she should fall into the hands of the Cimarroons than that we should be betrayed to the Spaniards. Like an eel, she strove to get free her dress giving her perfect freedom to strain every effort. So tenderly did I feel towards her for the sake of her heroic attempt that I was only thoughtful how not to hurt her. But it was misplaced kindness, for suddenly she slipped from my loosened grasp. In a moment she was at the bulwarks, poising herself for a spring into the water when suddenly she gave a low cry of horror and sprung back into my arms as I rushed to her side. In an extremity of abject terror, to which her resolution was suddenly changed, she clung about me, trembling from head to foot. Save me, senor, save me, she gasped as she sank down clasping my knees wildly. Oh god, Oh, Santa Maria, see what is coming? Oh, God, what will they do to me? I cannot bear it. Save me, Señor, save me. So distractedly did she cling to me that I was obliged to lift her in my arms before I could get to the side to see what had frightened her. And then I could not wonder how her courage had melted, for I saw a sight that made my blood run cold, close to the ship, and moving swiftly towards her, swarmed over half a score of black woolly heads, the ghostly moonlight glittered white on the long wake that stretched behind it, and on their rolling eyes, and, worst of all, on a grisly knife which each held in his grinning teeth. Like some hellish monsters engendered in the foul womb of the sea, they came on with lusty strokes, silent, sure, and determined. There was no time to fetch my caliber or wake the guard had I been willing to do so, but this was far from my wish, for I feared had they known the negro's purpose and seen the terror. Of their pretty prisoner. They would have dealt more hardly with our allies than the general would have liked. Moreover, to be plain, I had a still stronger reason for what I did, for I could not bear to think that those rough men should see my beautiful captive so scantily, yet withal so prettily clad as she was. So, Drawing my rapier, I sprang to the gangway for which they were making. Back, back, I cried, as low as I could for them to hear. The first man that tries to board has my blade through him. That, I thought, this made them, for each as we swam up, stepped without attempting to board, which they might easily have done for the ship being full of beetles, was very low in the water and moreover two chains hung down the side by the gangway. I was in no little doubt how I could deal with them should they make any attempt, for I feared that my terrified senorita would much hamper my movements since she had followed me to the gangway. Therefore to further dissuade them. I fell to showing them how ill the general would take what they did, seeing the prisoners were his. Even as I spoke, I was much encouraged to feel the senorita's arm still round me and draw from its sheath the strong sailor's knife I always wore. I knew then the brave girl had recovered her spirit, I could not refrain from pressing the little hand as it closed round the hilt of the knife, to let her know how I marked her courage. My speech had small effect on the Cimarroons, for though they still held off, yet they seemed not to note my words, but only to glare horribly at the girl by my side. Wondering what next to do, I was all at once aware that most of them had disappeared. There was something so unearthly and magical in this sudden vanishing that my heart misgave me. While I could see my foes, I did not fear but that I could deal with them as I wished. But now I was encompassed by unseen dangers, and in that ghostly moonlight I say plainly I was afraid. Nothing would have been more to my mind than to cry aloud and wake the sailors, yet I set my teeth hard and gripped a new Harris rapier. I felt he would have done as I hoped for courage to do, and I clung to my former resolution. Yet I saw it was useless to wait where I was, so, taking the señorita's hand, I led her towards the poop. Halfway, there she looked back, started, and clutched my arm. Look, señor, look, she whispered. Look at the forecastle. I turned and saw the evil sight I dreaded. Black against the moonlight sky, the wet shining figure of a Cimarron was climbing over the woolworks, where our head fast ran out. I knew directly they must have dived to the cable and climbed up by it. In another minute, they would all be aboard. Then I knew there was but one thing to do and run quickly under the poop gallery with the senorita. Go on, senorita, said I, as soon as we reached the door. You must leave me to deal with this alone. No, senor, she answered. I will not leave. I am not afraid now. It was only for a moment. I will stay and fight them with you. There is no need, said I. I am going to rouse the mariners. Indeed, it was time. One after another, I could see the black forms climb over the bulwarks, gripping and gleaming in the moonlight, and each with his bright knife. A hideous head, too, was glaring over the gangway, as though waiting for the rest. Still, the senorita would not go, but rather stepped out into the moonlight to be farther from the door. Which I held open. No, I will wait with you," she said resolutely. "Why should I not wait and fight beside the sailors when they come?" Because, Senorita," said I, growing desperate as I saw the wet, shining forms creeping outward the forecastle. Because they are rough men, and I would not have them see you as you are. A crimson flash overspread her beautiful face. With wide astonished eyes and parted lips, she met my gaze for a moment. Ah uh, she cried then, just as she had to Frank. You're a man. Dropping the knife as she spoke, she sprang towards me, and before I was aware what she did, she had taken my face between her soft little hands, and kissed me on the lips. Then she was gone. And even as that fair vision passed, I saw black forms dropping from the forecastle into the waist. Loudly then, I shouted to my company. And ere the Cimarroons had advanced many paces. One of the mariners came running up to me and then another and another blowing up their matches. That was enough for the seameroons, who we afterwards found had no heart to stand before gunpowder. One of them uttered a loud cry and then with one accord they all leaped into the sea. Lastly, they made for the shore and I had much ado to prevent my small men and archers hastening their swimming but at last I prevailed, after that I set a double watch, but we were no more disturbed that night. Next day I reported these things to the General, who so dealt with the Sea Maroons, and took, set order for a guard over the prisoners, that the Spaniards were no more molested, till we departed on our land journey. Though the negroes ceased not to urge him, by every device they could think of to permit them to have at least a few to murder, or better than not, the girl alone. As for me, I craved to be relieved of my charge, feeling that after what had passed, it would be better for us both if the captive had another warder but Frank only laughed and said he could trust no one, not even himself, with that lamp of Eve's flesh, unless it were a sober scholar like myself. With that answer, whereby he showed less knowledge of men than ordinary, I had to be content and bear myself as soberly and scholarly towards my prisoner as i could make shift to do till the time came for our departure end of chapter 21